You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. All right, so like I said, we're just going to kind of walk through this. Um, And so this might feel a little bit like machine gun truth, but I I hope that it will be good. And if nothing else, maybe you'll just catch one little snippet um, and that'll be good for you for the the day. Um, Here we go. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop right there. See, I told you this might take a little while. Um, I'm going to stop right there. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's, here's what's going to take place in just a moment, right? Like, like we just read this together. Gavin read it for us, right? And, and it pretty much preaches itself. But there's going to be a lot that's sort of focused, again, on our identity, on on the benefits that are provided to us by being adjoined to Christ, right? And yet, and yet, if it does not lead us to this place where we, along with Peter, say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then again, we have taken Christianity and used it essentially to make ourselves feel better rather than experiencing it for the end towards which it was given, which is the worship and the praise of an almighty God who we were always created to be in that kind of praise-giving relationship with. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But why? And this is a, this is a short list and yet a long list of why This blessing is due to this God, this God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says this in the remainder of verse 3, according to His great mercy. Now stop right there. (laughs) You guys are like, we're never going to finish. We will, I promise. According to His great mercy. So we see that God is to be blessed. This Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be blessed according to His great mercy. Now, so from the beginning, before we get to all this good news about an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, Peter's going to make it very clear how that inheritance is gained. And it is according to His great mercy mercy. You see, there's a lot of confusion in terms of the, 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 the Christian worldview where we sort of seem to equate it with all other worldly religions, where we think, okay, you essentially live by this code, you do them well enough, and by the end of your life, you've gained enough good favor with this God or with this being that I'm supposed to be pleasing, and through that now I've earned or merited a way into His good graces. And yet what Peter is reminding these Christians, these scattered peoples, is that it is not according to their works, but that it is according to His great mercy. According to His great mercy. So according to God's great mercy, what has He done, right? According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Now stop right there. (laughs) He 
has caused us to be born again. There's the thing, that's kind of a loaded term, right? And that like if you've uh, been around Christians or been exposed to Christianity for any length of time, you've probably heard that. And maybe that's a weird phrase to you. And, and probably it should be because it is. And that, and that how, how, how does one be born again? And yet here's what it is that, that Peter is, is drawing us to. Right, so the, the, the Bible posits for us that, that we were actually created, right, in such a way that we were meant to have relational harmony both with God and with one another, and that we were to experience that in, in perpetuity, so ongoing, forever, eternal. And yet what the Bible tells us is that while we were in that state, instead of choosing to live according to the way that God had designed these things, we chose instead to seek our own glory rather than His. And because of that, we now experience a fallenness, a brokenness, a severing of that relationship between us and God that also creates difficulties in our relationships with one another. And of course, the capstone of that is that death then entered the world. And so since Adam, now for all of what we have experienced in human history, we have all been born into a time and a place where death is our ultimate reality. That each and every body in this room will one day cease to breathe. Heart will stop beating. Glad you came this morning. Jokes aside, that, that's, that that is our reality. What hope of life can we have without the God who owns, rules, and sustains it, choosing to grant it? And yet what Peter is telling us here is that we have been born again, that although there is no fountain of youth, and for all our scientific advancements, immortality has not been numbered among them, although we can only delay death and not defeat it, That this God, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again into a new reality where death no longer reigns, but life reigns. We've been born again. We've been given a new reality. We've been given a new circumstance. And then what does it say? Born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we've been born again to this new situation where death is no longer the end for us, but now life is, where what we could only delay, Jesus now defeated. And it tells us that that is a living hope for us. What does Peter mean when he says that? If we take our ultimate reality in, in, into consideration, then all hopes that we have that, that belong to this world are, are hopes that perish eventually, right? Whether it's a certain number in the bank account, whether it's a certain car in the driveway, whether it's a certain, certain spouse or partner, that everything that we would have clinged to prior to God's great mercy would have been something that is perishing. But now, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
a hope that springs eternal. And then it says this, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So how has God accomplished all these things? How has He accomplished a living hope for us? How has He caused us to be born again to this living hope that He has accomplished for us? It is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, where we could do nothing but delay death, Jesus defeated death. And in so doing, He not only conquered our sin, but He proved His power and authority over life and His power and authority to give life. And so here's the thing. You may ask yourself, what is it that... What is it that... that gives Jesus the authority or even the ability to uphold His promise of this living hope, of this born-again life. He's proven it by His resurrection, His defeat of death itself. Now, here's where it gets really interesting because if we just stopped right there, like, I would take that deal. You know what I mean? Deal or no deal? Deal. Deal. Definitely deal. In that God, right, in, in, these, in, just this, in just this one simple verse, expresses to us His great mercy, right? That where punishment was due, He instead leveraged that punishment upon Jesus and has now given us that living hope that accompanies Him. But along with His great mercy, Peter is now going to reveal to us His great grace, the unmerited favor of God towards us. In verse 4 when he says this, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So not only has God provided life in the place of death, He gives us an inheritance, something beyond that, which is incredible to believe. And it's not just any inheritance. It's an inheritance characterized by four, four descriptors. And some of you are like, wait, I think I only read three, but you'll see what I mean. Let's just walk through them. This inheritance is imperishable. Right? So just like we were talking about earlier, how all of our hopes in this world were perishable, but now we have a living hope. Well, in the same way, this inheritance, any inheritance that we could hope to have here is perishable. And yet, this inheritance is imperishable, meaning it continues, it sustains. But what else characterizes it? It's also undefiled. Now, for some of us, we're like, that's a weird word. <laughs> and fair enough, like it, it kind of is in that there's not a lot of people, you know, running around using it <laughs> regularly. But it's a loaded word. It's a loaded word because it has everything to do with what the Bible puts on display for us in Jesus. You see, in the Old Testament, there was this thing called the law that you had to abide by and that you had to keep very religiously. 
And if you didn't, there were all kinds of things that you had to do in order to, to, to sort of make yourself clean again. And, and during that process, you would be known as defiled. You would have defiled yourself. You would have made yourself unworthy. And so when Peter tells us that our inheritance is not only imperishable, but that it's undefiled, what he's, what he's reminding us of is that the inheritance that we have is the inheritance that belongs to Jesus. You see, because, because what the Bible tells us about this man, Jesus, is that he came and that he lived every nook and cranny of that law perfectly and that he then died on our behalf. So the punishment under the law that we should have taken, he takes instead and now gives what? An inheritance that is not just imperishable, but is also undefiled, ritually untainted, complete, perfect, and unfading. So this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, meaning that its value does not depreciate meaning that it does not lose its quality nor its beauty over time. I can think of any number of things that I've thought would bring great joy to me that have been fading things. In fact, probably one of the, one of the best examples of that is when you go to buy a new car and you drive that thing literally one inch off the lot and you lose like 20% of its value. It was here... Now it's here, and it's worth less somehow. I don't know how that works, but that's how it works. And yet what Peter is telling us is this inheritance that we've received is not at all like that, in that it holds its value. It does not depreciate. It does not lose quality. It does not lose beauty. And here's the fourth and final descriptor that I think sometimes we miss because there's just so much good stuff around it. It tells us that this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading is also kept. It's kept. How many of us have had something that is intensely, immensely valuable to us that we have lost? It's a gut-wrenching, heart-sinking kind of feeling when that happens. And what good... Would this living hope be? What good would this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance be if it could be taken away from us? Peter tells us that this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance is kept for us and not just kept anywhere, but kept in the safest vault, which is heaven. And it's kept in heaven for you. I don't know about you, but based on all of that stuff, like whoever that you is, I want to be a part of that you. And so Peter's going to qualify that for us here in the next verse. Who, who is this you that he speaks of? Who is this inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept for? And it says this, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So this inheritance is given to those who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Now again, right? This, this speaks against every temptation of ours to self-justify, right? Like to, to say, here are the reasons, God, why you should let me have a chunk of that inheritance. It doesn't say because you behaved well. It doesn't say because you endured to the end. It says it's because God kept you. And you're like, no, wait, it says guarded. Here's the thing. If you go to the original language, they're not, uh, it's not the exact same word, but they are essentially synonymous. In that in the same way that God keeps our inheritance, He also keeps us. That we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, a salvation that will be revealed in Christ's glory at His second coming. So, in light of all that, what, what do we do? Verse 6 reads like this. In this, you rejoice. In this, you rejoice. So, in light of this great mercy, in light of the great grace that, that comes to us in this inheritance, in light of this living hope, the Christian life is now characterized by this one word, rejoice. And this is not like a, a superficial, like, okay, so we walk into church and we smile, we turn the frown upside down, right? because we've got a big Bible and we had our Starbucks this morning. I'm sorry, Starbucks is not a thing in Montrose. Yeah, I just lost tipster points there, whatever, right? No, this is a rejoicing. This is a rejoicing that is so comprehensive that even in the midst of our grieving, we're rejoicing. Right, listen to this. This is unbelievable because I, I, I'll tell you this. There is... There's no other worldview, I don't think anyway, that, that, that I know of, which, again, I'm only 30 today, um, but uh, in, in, in the limited amount of knowledge that I have, I don't know that I can think of any other worldview that gives us this kind of fortitude in the middle of our grieving, right? This is, this is what it says. In this you rejoice, right? He doesn't stop there. It says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, here's the thing. In any normal circumstance, like those two things would seem to be mutually exclusive, right? Like how can you rejoice and grieve? How does that work? And yet what Peter's telling us here is that that's absolutely possible. Let me tell you why it's possible. It's possible because they are no... <laughs> they have been disjoined. They are no longer mutually exclusive because our joy is linked to that which is in the Spirit, that which cannot be taken away from us. And our grieving is linked to that which is here, which is temporal, which is difficult, which is painful, and yet which is not ultimate. And so here's this beautiful way in which God, God honors and acknowledges 
the difficulty of life in a broken, fallen world, and yet at the same time reminds us that we have great cause to rejoice in the midst of our grieving. So he doesn't tell us, stop grieving, you should be rejoicing. He says, grieve, yes, but rejoice underneath. Rejoice. Rejoice because your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's own power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now here's one thing that I do want to point out in in that um, section there. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. You see, I think a lot, of, a lot of our collective questioning of God's goodness, um, of, of God's reality, like if He's even real or not, surfaces around this idea of what, like, what do we do with the difficulty of life? How do we reconcile that with a God that's good, loving, merciful, gracious, all these things that He claims Himself to be? And yet for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have partaken of the living water of the gospel, what God promises us is very explicit in Romans 8 about our pain. I don't have time to go down that whole rabbit trail, but suffice it to say this, he promises that for those who are in Christ Jesus, that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And so when trials come our way, Christian brothers and sisters, when these things come our direction, it's because they are indeed necessary in that God does not waste our pain. It's necessary. You say, well, wait a minute, like, How is that necessary? I don't feel like I really needed that. And so Peter gives us this great image when he says this. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, right, that same faith that's being guarded by God's power, more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it is tested by, uh, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what, what Peter is saying is there is this substance called gold that is of great value. And in order to see it become more valuable, in order to see it become just gold instead of gold and some impurities, you put it through fire so that what arrives out the other end is nothing but gold in its purest form, in its purest sense. And with Jesus, we can know unshakably that all of our trials are leading to that end. They're leading to that end. That's why he finishes that sentence by saying, may be found to result in. So we rejoice in the grieving through the trials, knowing that it will result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the idea that Christianity is some sort of self-help book is utterly untrue because it's not even about us. It's about God's glory in and through us. And then it says this, 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, this is how. This is how Romans can faithfully, honestly, securely say that all things work together for the good of those who love him because our ultimate good is not going to be found in anything that we could own, have, buy, or, or digest here. But it absolutely can be found in this imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance kept in heaven for us according to His great mercy. And so here's my hope this morning, if you're just kind of like, well, why, you know, why this today? I think number one, I think there, there's, there's a, a few groups of people in the room that, that I'd like to just take a moment and kind of address specifically. Number one, if you're, if you're a Christian in the room, um, and maybe life is just like, it's been kind of good to you. And like you've, you've, you've kind of got, you know, quite a few comforts and you, you've got these things in your life that, that whether you recognize it or not are, are tempting, tempting you to hope in them, tempting you to find identity in them, tempting you to find um, ongoing sustenance in them. I just want to remind you that all of those things are perishable, and yet what God has given you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is absolutely not. And so I would urge you to invest in that. I would urge you to, to put aside those things, to hold them rightly, right? There's nothing wrong with, with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with God having blessed people, and at the same time, the moment that we hope in them more than Jesus, we become idolaters, we begin to place our faith in things other than Him, things that can't sustain, things that can't keep. That's precisely why, that's precisely why Jesus says it's, it's so hard to have a lot of belongings and end up in the kingdom of heaven. We have to be careful. We have to be sober. We have to remind ourselves what is really real because it's not all of this. And then I think there's probably some of you who are Christians in the room that it's, it's been a tough go of it lately. You know, maybe, maybe what you believe about Jesus, maybe you following Jesus has set you at odds with a family member who you really truly know and love and, and seek to serve and all those things, and yet that relationship has been severed precisely because of what you believe. Or maybe there's just like general hardship. Maybe it's just a... It's been a tough season. I want you to be reminded that this is now for a little while. That this is now for a little while. And that in your grieving, you are one, absolutely allowed to freely, openly grieve. You can be who you are. And you can be fully known, not only by God, but by His church. And in the midst of that, be drawn to rejoicing because you have the surest rock upon which to stand. And I want you to find comfort and living hope 
in this this morning. And then I think there's some of you in this room that, that maybe walked in this morning and you, you think you're a Christian because you're able to sort of um, maybe speak the language, that the, there is a Christian language, maybe because you have a, a certain translation of the Bible or maybe because, you know, uh, you, you can say the right things, pray the right prayers or uh, exhibit a certain level of morality. And yet that's utterly not what makes you a Christian. It's certainly a sign by which that is observed, but if we are not first resting in this great hope, this living hope that has been given to us according to His great mercy and is being guarded in us through God's own power and not our own, I want to invite you to that place because the reality is that you're still laboring for an identity and for favor with God that Jesus already labored to provide and is the only one who could provide it fully, comprehensively, perfectly. And then there might be some of you in the room that really just don't know what you think about Jesus and, you know, if, if all of this isn't just like some crazy cult. <laughs> and I, and I, I really pray that like, that this would be compelling to you. Because I, I think that no, no matter what, at this point in time, no matter who you are in the room, like uh, there, there's a next step for you, isn't there? Like, even if you're wildly successful, like, there's still something else that you don't have that maybe you want or wish you could accomplish, wish you could sort of add to your, to your sort of life's resume. Let me tell you, that doesn't stop. It doesn't stop because it was never meant to rest in any of those things. It was meant to rest in this. Living hope. A living hope. And that living hope has been afforded to you, extended to you, graciously, freely, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so that's what we gather here this morning to celebrate. That's why we sing songs. That's why we clap our hands. That's why we raise our hands in praise to the Lord. That's why we, along with Peter, say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's worship this morning in that confidence. Let's be found resting in that reality. Let's find our identity in that good news and forsake all else because in that we can know that we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we can gather together and worship this good and gracious and merciful God. Lord, at no point in time did we deserve any of this. And yet, Lord, according to your great mercy, you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I pray, Father, for those of us who are believers in the room this morning, Lord, whether things are good or whether things are rough, Lord, that we would take those emotions that we would have, that we would weigh them soberly in light of our utmost reality, which is that we are exiles here. And that when we arrive home, all of our needs will be met. And Lord, I pray for those of us in the room who are not, who are not believers this morning or who maybe have some serious questions to ask ourselves about what we really believe. I, pr- I pray, Father, that, um, that this would be clear, Father, that your spirit would empower your word to do what only it can do in the lives of people, and that is make that which was dead alive, make that which was darkness light. I pray, Father, this morning that you would rescue people from off the quicksand and place them upon the rock. That you would gather us underneath your wing. Or that we would find rest, refuge, peace, identity, hope, courage to face the day in the glorious good news that this day is fleeting but the day that is to come is eternal and good and great and filled with every good promise. Every good promise that has been given by a God who has shown time and time again that He keeps His promises. So Lord, may we worship You in spirit and in truth this morning as we take the bread which symbolizes Your body and as we drink of the cup which symbolizes the blood of Your Son, Jesus. Lord, would we... (laughs) Would we in that moment not just be eating bread and some probably old grape juice? But God, would we be saying in that moment, would we experience in that moment the true living hope, the true inheritance that we have, which is a perfect broken body, perfect sufficient blood by which now we enter into saving, sustaining relationship with you. Lord, we worship you because you're good. And we we thank you for all good things, even those not mentioned this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.